0: speaks to them have you ever wondered what the voice of God sounds like or what it would I think in scripture you get more of a sense of what it feels like because there's thunder and lightning and just power so much so as if you continue to read on chapter 20 the nation of Israel tells Moses hey Moses you speak to us because we cannot stand you know in the presence of God and hear his voice because it is So powerful. And I pray this morning that you would hear the voice of God as we read Scripture and that His Spirit would speak to you in such a powerful way that you are moved like you've never been moved before in your desire to follow after God because of His great love for you. Let's pray. Lord God, you are holy, holy, holy. You alone are the Lord God Almighty. And as we read your text this morning, again, I pray that you would speak to every heart in this room. We are at different places in our lives, different things going on. There are so many things in our world that pull our attention in different ways, both good and bad. But this morning, I pray that we would each sell our hearts before you, that we would hear the powerful word of God speak to our hearts and your spirit would transform us this morning. I pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Exodus chapter 20 is uh, Pastor John last week brought us to the point that we're going to speak this week. I may reference it a little bit because it's just very important to understand what's going on. The nation of Israel has been brought out of slavery from Egypt. And God has done that for him. God has brought him to a place Because of his great love for them, because of his promises to their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And not only that, the nation of Israel, if you remember, they cried out for a deliverer. Moses was sent, and now God has delivered them and brought them to this place before the mountain. And before the nation of Israel enters into the promised land, he speaks to them about this covenant that they are to have. And again, this is they're already his children, and I want to make that distinction. It isn't that the nation of Israel kept all these commandments, so God delivered them. No, God has delivered them. Now he's laying out his commandments for them. So I want you to see that difference. Sometimes we think, well, if I do good, then God will save me. No, God saves us, therefore we do good. I hope you see the distinction. So let's go ahead and read the text, starting in verse 1. We're going to read just the first six verses, and we're going to cover just two of the Ten Commandments this morning. So let's read. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of it what is in heaven above or in earth below or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Those two commandments, there's just a lot packed in there, and hopefully we are able to cover it all. They look like two simple commands. Don't they have no other gods before him? And don't make any idols. You you might be saying, yeah, I could check, check. I've done that. Pretty good. Well, let's look exactly what it means. And let's first do this. We're going to look at. What did it mean to the nation of Israel as they stood before God? And then we'll see how does that apply to you and me today in 2018? Or even does it? So let's look at that. Let's go back to verse 1. So again, God is, is going to lay out the terms of this covenant contract that he is entering into with the nation of Israel. So that's number one. If you look at it, it says, then God spoke all these words. And it doesn't even say commands. It says words. Right. These words, which we identify as the Ten Commandments, there's not an exhaustive list of all of God's laws in every situation of the nation of Israel's life. That would be what follows in the remainder of the book of Exodus and the subsequent books. If you look just real quickly at chapter 21 of Exodus. So after God gives them these these words, which again, we're calling the Ten Commandments because it does say that in another section, He says, now these are the ordinances in Exodus 21, 1. Now these are the ordinances which you are to set before them. So he's going to give them a bunch of other commands for every situation in life. You see, the law really consists of 603 commands to the nation of Israel. But these 10 that are set before us here are more like the constitution for the nation of Israel meaning they're, they're legally binding in a basic and foundational way. It's more like our constitution. We have a constitution, and then within that, then there's other laws. We have, I don't even know how many laws we have in our nation, but we have more than 603. We probably have more than that just in our, the county of Riverside. So these are just kind of like the preliminary, the foundation commandments that everything else hinges on. And if you remember what Jesus said, there were, he, he brought it down to just two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On those two hinge all, all the commandments of God. And as we go through the Ten Commandments over the f- next few weeks, you will see that the first four commandments deal with our relationship and the proper way that we deal with God, and the next six deal with how we interact with each other, with our fellow human beings. And again, this is God's covenant that he's laying out for the nation of Israel. And in verse 2, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God declares how this covenant is to be inaugurated. Because I have brought you out of the house of slavery, because I have saved you now, Your end or your part of the bargain of this covenant, remember John talked last week about the covenant that we have, is to follow God in these ways. That's our part. He's brought them out of slavery. He's redeemed them. He's saved them. He's loved them. He's chosen them to be his people again, not because they kept the law. This is before the law. If you think about it in your own life, God chose you, pulled you out of slavery to sin has redeemed you and saved you because why? Because you kept the Ten Commandments? No. No, because he loved you. Now, therefore, because of his love, we follow him. In the same way with the nation of Israel here. And again, as I mentioned before, when they were in Egypt, they were crying out for a deliverer. So God has delivered them. He says, I'm the Lord your God. I brought you out of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Therefore, in verse 3, he's going to tell them, how they are to relate to him, how they are to worship him. So let's look at verse three, and this is our first commandment. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. Again, you shall have no other gods before me. Well, what does that mean? Again, let's see what it means to the nation of Israel at the time that it was given. You see, Yahweh, who is the Lord God of Israel, desires and deserves complete unrivaled loyalty and devotion that's what he's saying to them he desires and deserves complete unrivaled loyalty and devotion if you notice there you shall have no other gods it makes it seem like okay there's a pantheon of gods and as long as yahweh is the supreme god then it is okay you see the term god there is a generic term it's the it's the hebrew word you may have heard of it before elohim It means deity or God, a generic term. And it incorporates in its meanings the supernatural beings of the world, like angels. So, again, this does not mean that, hey, as long as you worship me, if you worship angels and you worship me, as long as I'm the top dog, so to speak, then that's okay. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, again, as long as I have preeminence, you can worship all the other gods you want. Because, remember, the nation of Israel just came out of Egypt, where they worshiped the a pantheon of gods, and they're going to go into the promised land where they do the same thing, where everyone worships all these different gods. And remember, God has pulled the nation of Israel out of Egypt. He says, You are my special people. You're going to live a certain way. You're going to be different than everybody else. And here he's laying out that covenant on how they were to be different. Now, let me just give you a few examples from the rest of the Old Testament. How when it says that you shall have no other gods before me, that doesn't mean that there's other gods. Let me show you that. Turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, let's go to actually chapter 32, verse 39. I had another verse in there, but for the sake of time and clarification, let's just look at this one. So Deuteronomy, chapter 4. You know, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, 32. 32. Verse 39. says this. This is the song of Moses. It says, see now that I am he and there is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded and it is I who heal and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. He's singing about God. There is no other God but Yahweh. So again, the reason I'm reading that is to show you that in this commandment, it's not saying that, hey, there's other gods. No, there's only one God, and it's Yahweh, the God of Israel. Turn with me to the book of Psalm. and look at Psalm 96, verse 4 and 5. Psalm 96, verses 4 and 5 also deals with this. And the psalmist wrote this. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, he is to be feared above all other gods. And again, you might like, oh, see, there, there are other gods. Well, look what it says in the next verse. For all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made heavens, made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. So again, God is... Not just above God's. He is the only God. It is he who has created all things. All the other gods of all the other nations. He's saying are just idols. And let's look at one last verse in the prophet Isaiah. Uh, Look at chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43. And we're going to look at verses 10 through 11. Again, just another verse as we see in the totality of the Old Testament. Where the law and the prophets. Declare that there is only one God. So in Isaiah chapter 43. Look at verse 10. He says this. He says you are my witnesses declares the Lord. And my servant whom I have chosen. In order that you may know and believe me. And understand that I am he. Before me there is no God formed. And there will be none after me. I even I am the Lord. And there is no Savior Besides me. So again I just want you to get a sense of that understanding. That even though here in the in the first commandment that we're looking at. He says have no other gods before me. He's not saying that there are other gods. He's saying I'm the only other God. Everything else even those angelic beings are not to be given priority over me. And they're not to be looked at as rivals towards me. As a deity. It is Yahweh alone who is to be worshipped as the sole deity or as God. So that's what he's telling the nation of Israel. Again, because they just came out of a culture where there were a bunch of gods and everybody worshiped all kinds of gods, and they're going to go into a nation or an area where the same thing is happening. So that's the first one. Let's look at the second one in verse 4 of Exodus chapter 20. It says this You shall not make for yourself an idol. Or any likeness of what is in heaven above or in earth beneath or in the water under the earth. God is covering every aspect of his creation. Yahweh here is addressing man-made gods or literally manufactured deities. Because again, they came from a nation where they did that. They had statues of the creation uh, of the sun. Of animals, and they worship those things, and it was normal and again they 're going into a nation shortly where the same thing is going to be happened. but God is saying, "You are a special people. remember we learned this last week. you are different. you are not to do those things. This is how you are to relate with me and keep covenant with me again, He did not want Israel to be like the other cultures. If you turn back with me, and I want to show you that verse uh, in particular, chapter 19, verse 4. Let me read that to you. He says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Again, He said this prior to giving them the Ten Commandments. I have delivered you. I have brought you to this place. You are my special people, my prized possession. Now you are to keep covenant with me in the following ways. So you could tell, which we'll see in a moment, if they break covenant, then they will suffer the discipline of God. But God is saying, I have already done all these magnificent things for you. Therefore, the proper response is, is to worship me the way that I say I am to be worshipped. You see, as when you look at this verse, you may be thinking, as I have before, is I don't make little idols. I don't have little statues in my house that I worship. I don't even have little bobbleheads of sports figures. I'm not saying that's idol worship, by the way, if you collect those, I'm just came to my mind. <clears throat> Especially no, I'm not even just I'm not gonna Anyways, we'll leave certain teams out of it. (laughs) Where were we? I'm getting off track here. So idolatry wasn't just about having a little statue because there there was a lot more involved in idolatry. Idolatry, you see, back then was more than a statue. It was a whole religious system. It was a style of life. It was a lifestyle. That's why he says later in verse five, you shall not worship them or serve them. So it's not about just bowing down before it. It's about serving them. And so what I want to do right now is take you through a, a few comparisons of ancient idolatry and what they actually did and what they believed about idols. And you will see a similar comparison with the way some people, and maybe sometimes you and me, can look at our religious experience or what we believe about religion. So, let me just give you three, three different examples here. So, when an idol was carved in ancient times, uh, there was a ritualistic incantation said over the idol, and it was believed that the spirit of the deity or the essence of the deity would inhabit this idol. So when they had the idol before them, they actually believed they were talking to their deity. And their deity could communicate to them through this idol. And so as you think of that, think of modern day religion. Or maybe some of us, in some areas, the way we look at uh, an idol or a something that is created. Is there any religious idol that you can think of in your own life? That you might look at the same way or a charm or sometimes the cross, right? We, we have a, I'm not saying crosses are wrong, but what I'm saying is sometimes we can look at a cross and think that it has the power of God in it, that there is something mystical and magical about a cross or a statue in the same way. Is there any religious idol that you might look at in that same way? It's something that we need to ask ourselves because then we would be breaking the second commandment. You know, that we think, hey, this has special powers. You know, your your friends might joke with you who are non-believers. Oh, I can't touch the Bible. It's going to burn my hand. You know, like it has some special power or something in itself. This is not deity. Right. We know that the Lord God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So you could see God is saying, I'm not an idol, and you are not to worship idols because what you're actually doing is is worshiping a false god, something that you think has my essence in it, and that is not the correct way to worship me. So again, is there any religious idol that you might look at in that same way? That's something we need to ask ourselves. A second example of ancient idol worship is this, is um, that image or the man-made thing... <clears throat> would improperly substitute God. So instead of looking at God, you would look to this thing. I and mean, I was thinking of this in the relation to the Ark of the Covenant. The nation of Israel did this, right? You remember when they went out to battle in First Samuel? They said, let's take the Ark of the Covenant with us because they believed that that had special powers and that would fight for them. That if they had the Ark, they would win. And what happened? The Ark was taken, it was stolen, they lost and it's just a great it was just a disaster because they were looking to a thing instead of God. This image was their substitute for God. And again I, I mentioned this in the first one, if you look at a statue or a cross with Jesus on it, some people look to that image rather than to God himself. And they make much about statues or icons or pictures, paintings. Those things in themselves are not bad, but when they begin to replace God, then we have an issue. And again, as you can see, those are, are things that modern day religion can sometimes fall into idolatry. Let me give you a, another example here. Uh, idolat- idolatrous gods were to believed all powerful and they could do everything but feed themselves. That's why you'll see um, even today, right? Before God, people will offer food because the gods, were they couldn't feed themselves. So your way of worshiping them or paying homage to them was to bow down before them and give them some food so that they could eat. But the payoff was and this is where it can get to like uh, relate to the way we might view religion is that. So this worshiper would give their God some food and their belief was that now this God owes them something. I've given you food, now you answer my prayer. You make my crops plentiful. And as I was thinking that, I was thinking, we can be that way sometimes with God, can't we? God, I came to church, therefore, you owe me something. I gave you two hours out of my day, especially if Robert goes long, therefore, you know... Whatever, you fill in the blank. I did this for you, therefore you do this for me. You see how we can become idolatrous in that same way? How we can view God in that way? Hey God, I read my Bible today, therefore you owe me this. God, I gave in the offering today, therefore you owe me this. God does not operate that way. And this is why God is telling the nation of Israel, you shall not make for yourself an idol, It meant more than just making a carved image. It was this whole lifestyle of religious worship. Because again, sometimes we view God that way and we can hold religion that way. Is that if I show up to church today, then things are going to go great. If I read my scripture today and do my daily devotion today, things are going to go great. That's not the way God operates. God saved us already before we did anything. So there's nothing that we can do that's going to, you know, make God happy with us or bless us even more in that sense. Now, we could put ourselves in certain positions where God can bless us because we're following after him, but he doesn't owe us anything. And that's the point, because in idolatry, they viewed their worship as I do this for my God and he's going to bless me. And so, again, we have to be careful in our hearts, in our minds that we don't look at God that way. Right? And I pray you don't I pray you don't think hey, I came to church today, so you know, God's going to do A B or C for me. That's the wrong way to look at coming to church. We come to church, I hope, to worship the Lord God for all that he's done for us and expect nothing in return. I mean, in the songs that we sing, we never sing, "Hey God, we do this and you get to do this for us." You know, it's like we're just saying You are holy, Lord God Almighty. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. That's it. The fact that we even get to say that is awesome if you think about it. That God Almighty, the Lord of all creation would would be here listening to us and receiving our praises is unbelievable if you think about it. So again, this is not true worship this idolatrous worship that uh, god is laying out to the nation of israel one last comparison from idolatrous worship to how we can relate it to ours another thing about idolatrous worship is that it wasn't concerned with ethical behavior it was more about the frequency and generosity of the worship to that god the more that you you know all of my obligation for that god Was to once in a while or as often as I could go before him, bow down before him, offer him some food and whatever the prayer was, recite some prayer. And once I left, that was it in my religion. That's all I had to do. There was no there was nothing requiring me to do anything else. Do you see the comparison how we can live in our own religion? hey, all God wants for me is to go to church once a week and that's all I need to do. There's no, I don't need to change my life. God's not concerned with how I live with my family, how I act at work, how I act in the relationships everywhere else. Is that the way our God is? No, he's not. God does care about our ethical behavior. A matter of fact, Scripture tells us that our ethical behavior really shows what we really believe about God. So if you're under that thought that, hey, as long as I go to church, it doesn't matter what I do outside of church. That's an idolatrous worship. That's not the God of Scripture. God is concerned with how we live. Why? Because we are his people. We are his prized possession. And we are to show forth the praises and the magnificent work of God with our lifestyle. So if our lifestyle doesn't line up with our worship, then there's something's going on there. So you see the difference? Idolatrous worship says we just come and worship. And once I leave church Monday through Saturday, that's my time. Or even like Sunday at uh, 11 o'clock, God's done and I'm doing what I want to do. And guess what? Sometimes we can do that, can't we, if you're honest with yourself, right? Come Monday morning as we're driving to work, you know, we forget about all we forget about God. And I would encourage you to think differently about your relationship with God. As God is laying out his covenant with the nation of Israel, he saying you're not going to be like everybody else. And guess what? God cares about our life 24 seven. And thankfully, he does. So hopefully that gives you a better understanding of It's just not, I don't have a carved image in my house that I'm worshiping, but it's, all, it's the way that I worship, that mode of worship that can become idolatrous. Let's go down to verse 5. In verse 5, it says, You should not worship them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generation uh, of those who hate me. And then verse 6, But showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. What is God saying here? So he's expanding on the second commandment, which I mentioned a little while ago, or just a second ago, about what it means to worship and serve them. But I want to point out something else here in verse uh, 5. It kind of answers the question, well, why, aren't we, why can't we worship God in this way? And if you look at the, the second sentence uh, of verse 5, he says, For I am the Lord your God. Yahweh was their God. He was not a God with lowercase g like the ones in the other nations that they came out of and the ones that they're going to. He is totally different. He is the Lord God of all creation. He was their God, and he's the one that delivered them out of Egypt. Again, I keep uh, saying this, but it's important for us to get we're different. God's called us out of an old, you know, he called them out of Egypt, and they're to be different. And you can see that in our own lives. God has called us out of this world, so to speak, to be different. We're not to be like everybody else. That's why you don't worship like everybody else does, because I'm your God. It's personal. Is God your God, yes or no? And if he is, then you follow his commands. If he's not, then do what you want. But he's telling the nation of Israel, you shall not worship them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God. And then he also adds, I am a jealous God. Well, isn't jealousy a sin, you might be thinking? What does he mean by that, that God is a jealous God? Well, what it's saying here is that God does not allow his people to, To give the glory and honor that he deserves to somebody else. Because he's the only one worthy of glory and honor. So he's not jealous that somebody else is getting it and he's not. Because he's the only one worthy of it. And Israel owes everything to him. And so that the minute that they start worshiping other gods. Is the minute that they break covenant. And God's anger comes upon them. Because again no image or person is worthy of his praise. If there is no such thing, which there isn't, of another god, then only Yahweh is the one worthy of worship. Scripture tells us he will not even share his glory with another because he alone deserves the glory. If you notice every time the nation Israel worships another god, God compares it to what? Does anybody know? Starts with the A. Next letter is D. Adultery. He says you're committing, you're cheating on God. You're committing adultery. And if you've ever read Ezekiel, there's some very descriptive ways that God says Israel is cheating on him. I'm not going to read it this morning because there's children in here. But turn with me to the book of Jeremiah. I just want to give you one example of this. Everybody's like, oh, I'm going to go read Ezekiel now. Jeremiah chapter 6, here's a time in the nation of Israel under the reign of King Josiah that the nation of Israel has rebelled against God. And Jeremiah the prophet was raised up during that time to speak to the nation. And it says this, here's a description of the nation of Israel worshiping other gods, how God views it as idolatry or cheat, I mean adultery. You're cheating on God, he says this. Then the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen the faithless have you seen what faithless Israel did? So he's speaking to Judah when the Israel was divided into two kingdoms. He's saying, Did you see how faithless Israel was? She went up she went up on every high hill and under every tree, and she was a harlot there. That reference to going up to a hill on a high tree, because that's where they would station the little idols. If you read throughout the Old Testament, there were were these high places where the nation of Israel would set up idols and worship. And so God is comparing that to committing adultery or being a prostitute under this tree with a false god. That's how God views it. Drop down to verse 9. And it came about because of the lightness of her harlotry, That she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees because the stones and trees were the idols. So God's saying, They committed adultery against me by worshiping another God. That's how God looks at idolatrous worship. That's very powerful imagery, if you could imagine how you would feel if your spouse were to cheat on you, how betrayed. How broken, how disgusted you would feel. You would lose trust for quite some time if it would ever be repaired. And God views us worshiping other things in the same way. I didn't mention this, but it says when it says you should have no gods uh, before me. That word there actually means face. So like before my face, before my eyes. You're cheating on God right before his eyes. And if you think about it, we actually are. If God can see all things and knows all things, we're doing it right in his plain sight, even when we think we're hiding it. It's just that the graphic imagery is very powerful for me to think about. When I, you know, if I were to worship another God or put something in front of God, how he views it, because I am his possession. So let's let's continue on. So what are the results of this? Here's here's a uh, in verse five and verse six. God actually tells them how he will deal with them if they commit adultery against him. And in verse the rest of verse five, he says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children, the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And then he gives the opposite in verse six but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, it's not saying that if if I sin against God, me, that my son and daughter will pay for my sins, like the penalty will be brought upon them. That's not what it's saying, because at the end of each sentence, it says for those who hate me and for those who love me. So God is saying that for every uh, success, uh, every generation that comes afterwards, for those who hate him, they will suffer the penalty of their iniquities. And this reciprocal is true. For every generation after generation that loves me, they will be blessed. That God will be faithful to them. He'll show loving kindness. And you see the, the, the difference in the numbers? He says third and fourth generations will be punished but thousands will he'll be faithful to again just showing god's love over against his judgment so each generation is responsible for their own walk with god i can't you know bring my children into the kingdom so to speak each and every one of them will have to make their own decision and i mentioned this a number of times they can't stand before god and say hey my dad was a pastor, so I get the heaven card, right? <laughs> no, you know, I, I I wish that were so, you know, but no, they each have to make their own decision on their own and vice versa. You know, um, the children, what I mean is the children can't get their parents into heaven either. Well, wait, hey, well, I was, a, I was a believer, or my son was a believer, so... Uh, I get in too, right? No, that's, that's not the way it works either. You may have seen the, uh, this thing going around on on YouTube this week about the Pope. Did anybody see that thing of the Pope, what he told the little child? No, but am I the only one who watches YouTube? Am I the only one who watches boring things about that? I must be, okay. <laughs> well, there was this thing, and it, w- it was heart-wrenching because this little boy went to the Pope, and he was able to ask a question. And he said he asked the pope. He said, "My dad was a, a atheist. Basically, is he in heaven? I mean, what do you say? I mean, it's a little kid. He's he's heartbroken." Um, the pope basically told him that you know what? Because your dad baptized you, and, and your brothers and sisters, well, then he showed that he he you know he did a, a great act, so he gets into he's pro, he's in heaven. I mean, nobody really knows. Only God knows. And I get it. You don't, you don't want to say, well, no, hey, son, you know, your dad was an atheist. He's probably not. He's, you know, he's burning for all eternity. Obviously, he's not going to say that. It's a little sensitive in what you're going to say. But you can't mislead people either. You know, Each generation will be responsible for their own, their own relationship with God. Now, we as parents, I want to say this, is we could put our kids on a good path, right? We can be good examples to them. And make it hard for them, and so to speak, to fall away from God, you know. I remember I heard a pastor this week talking about that. He said, hey, my parents, you know, they took me to church uh, twice on Sunday. They got me involved in this and that. So it was really hard for him. They, they read the Bible a lot to, like, eject himself out of that. They put him in a good place. He said, they put me on a downhill slide towards righteousness. I like that. And I hope I've done that with my children. Sorry. I don't want to make it hard for them to follow God. Okay. All right. So, sorry about that. But our lives have ramifications on our children. So we need to be careful and watch our lives as well. It doesn't mean they're going to pay for our sins. But they can suffer for some of the things that we've done, right? I mean, the effects of our sins have some effect on them, but not on eternity, not the eternal ramifications. So it's just a warning to us as parents. To watch our faith, watch how we live. Are we putting our children on a downhill slide towards righteousness? Or are we making it hard for them to follow after God? Because you and I don't do it. So what example do they have in, at the home? I hope my example can be shown worthy. Ultimately, it is their own responsibility, though. I mean, uh, they all, we all have our own responsibility to God and following after God. And, and there's only so much we can do as parents. So I know a lot of us wish, hey, I, just, I wish I could put my kids in the kingdom. All right. So those are the first two commandments. So how do these first two commandments apply to us? Let's get into a time of application and we'll close with this. Number one, if you're a believer and you've kept covenant with God, we're called. One of the ways that we do is we're called to worship Yahweh only. He is the only God that we worship he must have preeminence in our life and again we may not worship a a a pantheon of gods but there are things that can take the place of god in our life and god needs to have preeminence over and over again scripture talks about that and i'm going to give you three examples of where it does do that turn with me to the gospel of matthew we're going to find our three examples uh, in the scripture this morning here Matthew chapter six, look at verses twenty four through twenty five. In Matthew twenty six, verses twenty four and twenty five. Jesus is saying that God must have preeminence in our life over our finances. Sometimes our finances become can become a God to us. Look at what he says here. Uh, I think that's the wrong verse, isn't it? What is it? It's Matthew 6, I'm sorry. I got a lot of verses going on. It's Matthew 6. Yeah, Matthew 6. I put the wrong one, sorry. Matthew 6, verses 24 through 25. It's actually on your bulletin this morning. It says this: No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, or money, some translations will say. You can't serve two. One has to have the preeminence, and God is saying you have to serve me or you can't serve me and your father. You can't do both. One has to have preeminence over the other. And so sometimes in our lives, we can make it all about our finances, that that can dictate to us how we live and even to some extent keep us from worship of God. And so so Jesus here is telling the disciples, you can't do that. You have to make me preeminent in in worship. Or what about family relationships? Sometimes in our own lives... Our family relationships can take priority over God, right? Our children can become our God. Our parents can become our God. Our spouse can become our God. Meaning they are more important to us than our relationship with God. And in our culture, that might sound harsh, right? Like, what do you mean by that? Uh, Well, let's just, I'm just going to put it simple, that in an individual believer's life, God must have preeminence. It's all about God. And this is a then your spouse, then your children, God, spouse, children, then family. That's the way scripture calls us to live. Sometimes we get it reversed, right? Sometimes our children come before our spouse and then God's way down here. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 37. He says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So I wasn't just making that up. God must have preeminence in our life over every other relationship. I know I've told this story a bunch of times, but I'll tell it again. That was uh, one of the things that drew me to Mindy when we were dating. You have probably heard this, so I'm sorry. I don't want to embarrass her, but I'm going to Sorry, is that when we were dating and I was like calling her like just to say hi, like a good boyfriend. Uh, She's like, hey, uh, don't call me at this time. These are my words. Basically, I'm doing my devotion, like I'm spending time with God. I was like, what? I was like, well, that's awesome. She's putting God before me. Could you believe that? Yeah, I couldn't either. She makes God more important, and she still does to this day. And you want to find a good spouse? That's what you look for, that God is the most important person in their life. I know when, when I've d- done some marriage counseling and I say that, hey, if each of you put God first and you grow closer to God, then you two will grow closer together. But when you, it's all about you and not God, you start drifting apart. So you know you have a good relationship if that person puts God first. Because if they put God first, they're going to do what God says. And God tells the husband to love his wife, right? Like he loves his own body. And he tells the wife, what does he tell the wife? Husbands all know this. No one's going to say it because I'll say it because I'm way up here. No, it tells her to honor your husband, to submit to your husband. But you're going to do that because he loves you. And he does everything for you, and it's easy for you to do that. That's what, that's what scripture says. So the point being is that we put God first in our relationships, even above family relationships. Thirdly, God must have preeminence in our life, even of our own lives. Even of our own lives. And hopefully I got this verse right. Uh, I, this one I put Matthew 16. Did I get this one wrong? Oh, well, we did Matthew sixteen. Oh, yeah, Matthew sixteen, verses twenty four and twenty through twenty six. Jesus said to his disciples, "If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will a man be profited, if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul?" Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? God must have preeminence in your life, even over your own self. Meaning you can't be so selfish with, all you, with who you are that you put your own desires before God's desires. God has to come first in our life. Above anything else. This is what it means to worship the Lord your God only. He comes before anything before work, before family, before your own self. And you could fill it in with anything else that you want in there. If those things are drawing you away from God or you look at those things greater than you do God, then are your, your covenant with God, your relationship with God is off. And thankfully, God is there to help us fix it and to forgive us when we do that because we can all do that at certain times in our life. But don't stay there. Don't stay in that area. So how do the first two commandments apply to us? Number one, we are called to worship Yahweh alone. Again, he has preeminence in our life. Secondly, we are called to love the Lord God with our entire being. Again, in Matthew 22, look at verse 37. Matthew 22, verse 37. This is where Jesus said uh, to the, uh, the rich young ruler, I think it was, or to the Pharisees, About what is the greatest law. And I quoted this earlier. He said. You shall love the Lord your God. With all your heart. With all your soul. And with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Do you love God. With all your heart. All your mind. All your soul. Everything. Just your entire being. We are to love God. So yes. the, The first commandment. These first two commandments. Do apply to us. That's how we're called. To, that's worship, that God is everything to us. Before anything else in your life, God is important. And so just ask yourself, do you, love the, do you love the Lord your God that way? Thirdly, we do not make Yahweh into an image of our liking. Again, a lot of the idol worship was that they would make it into uh, something that they enjoyed seeing or something that they liked and I didn't mention this earlier, that was part of the idolatrous worship. And they would spend so much time creating and making the gods that they would like to look at in their image, an image to their liking. And sometimes we can do that with God, right? We start making excuses about our lack of commitment to God and start making God in our own image of what we think he likes and doesn't like or he allows and doesn't allow. Just like in the scriptures that I read, they seem harsh, don't they, sometimes? We're to love God more than our mom and dad or my children. He's to have preeminence over everything. But that's what Scripture says. This is what God deserves. He saved us. Don't forget what he's done for us. And how much we owe him our entire being. So it should make it easy to love God that way. So we don't make Yahweh into an image of our liking lastly we worship and serve him according to the ways he says to worship him again it goes back into making the god into the image that we like you know we can make excuses well you know god doesn't really care if i you know i don't pray or i don't read his word or i don't go to church or i don't treat my wife correctly right does he does he care about those things Again, that's an idolatrous form of worship where, hey, I go and do my, uh, you know, I pay my whatever, you know, my time or I give some money and I could do whatever else I want in worshiping and serving God like they did back in, you know, ancient idolatrous ways. No, God cares about every aspect of our life and scripture speaks to most every aspect of our life. In our relationships, in in the way that we relate to people at work, All those things are part of worshiping God. God cares about our entire life. Therefore, we are to worship him and serve him according to the ways he says to worship him. So again, last four things. How do the first two commandments apply to us? Number one, we're called to worship Yahweh only above all things. Secondly, we're called to love the Lord our God with our entire being. Thirdly, we do not make Yahweh into an image of our liking. And fourthly, we worship and serve him according to the ways he says to worship him. Let's pray. Lord God, Lord, we come before you knowing that we have failed you in these areas of our life at one time or another, and maybe even now. And I pray specifically, Lord, for those of us in the church who are who name your name, who say we believe on you, who say that we have been saved by you, I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to love, to keep covenant with you, that you would help us to worship you alone and nothing else, that you would help us not to make any images in our life that would take your place, that we would not let people or things in our life take your place, not because we're trying to earn your love but because you love us and because that's how we show our love for you help us to do that Lord God and when we fail help us to run to you right away and ask for forgiveness I pray Lord for some of us that we need to grow in these areas of our life that we let so many things crowd you out help us Lord God to follow after you to learn more about you to want to and desire to love you and to follow you more than we do now. And Lord God, I also pray this morning for anybody in this room who does not truly know you, who doesn't worship you as the only God and maybe not even believe in you. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to their hearts, that you would soften them, that you would soften their their hearts so that they might follow after you, they might cry out to you, asking for forgiveness Asking for deliverance as ancient Israel did. And they would find you to be a loving Savior. That is my prayer this morning, Lord God. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for taking us out of the bondage of sin. And delivering us into your marvelous kingdom. May we glorify you with the lives that we live because of all that you've done for us. And we pray this in your name. Amen.